if you kind of thought the first part of 1 Corinthians 7 was like not really applicable to you, or you're like, why are we like thinking about this? Then I, I think tonight will help you begin to understand why these things actually do apply to your lives. Whether, you know, like I said last week, whether you're um, a senior in high school or even if you're a sixth grader, this little section is going to help you understand why Paul, through God's Word, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and why we as a church, and in particular Cross Point Youth, would want you also to know these things about marriage and being single. And so tonight, I hope, actually, will be really, really helpful and really applicable to your lives, as well as mine. When I was preparing all of this, I just thought, as I always do when I'm preparing sermons, oh my goodness, I'm not doing this well. Uh, It's just overwhelmingly how I feel. I think most of us probably go to Scripture and are certainly blessed and encouraged, but at times, and I think rightfully so, convicted because I think we always have a capacity to serve the Lord more faithfully. Not that that earns us anything in the eyes of God, but as His children, we want Him to be pleased with our lives. And so I think we're always rightly trying to please God more than we we were yesterday or last year or when we were 10 or, or whatever it may be. And so I think tonight will be helpful in helping us to know how exactly we can do that with our whole lives. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, just a small section here. Paul says, and remember he's talking about uh, marrieds and singles, and then he moves into this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So let's stop right there. Um, I'm not going to explain exactly what that is if you don't know. But in the Old Testament, one of the signs of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. And so, again, I'm not going to explain it to you because you're just going to do this. Right, But it was one of God's signs that he made of the covenant with Abraham. And so, as funny as it may be, if I were to explain it, what it actually represents is a relationship with God, an obedient act to a a good, loving God. And so, what Paul is saying here is, okay, if you think that you doing that or not doing that will somehow win you favor with God, like you need to get that out of your mind. So that's, that's what's happening. I just wanted to explain that to you before we move on. Verse 19, and here's, here's what he says about it. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So whether you're circumcised or not, what we're about as the church is keeping the commandments of God. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. I want to stop right there and explain something else. When we think of slavery, in particular servanthood in the Bible, we may immediately like shoot to the early 1900s, in particular like 1950s, and thinking of whites and blacks. And I mean, it's just a horrible time. It's, it's a horrible stain of sin in the life of our country. 
But whenever we look at the Bible, that is certainly a possibility when we talk about slavery or servanthood. But most often, this type of slavery or servanthood was something that you would choose for yourself because it would actually get you out of poverty. So especially as it relates to the Jews, every seven years, they had to allow slaves to either buy their freedom or just be set free completely. And so whenever we're thinking about this, we're like, well, why would Paul tell them to remain slaves? That's crazy. Because it's not the slavery that we would actually think of in most instances. But he does say, but if you can gain your freedom, go ahead and do that. So verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Okay, so have you ever thought that you'll be a better, more effective Christian when you are blank? So let me give you a few examples. So I will be a better, more effective Christian when I'm finally done with school. So once I get through middle school, once I get through high school, then I'll finally be able to be the best Christian that I can be. Or maybe it's not even that long term. You might be thinking, okay, I will be the best Christian, the most effective Christian when this play is finally over, when I'm done with play practice and how much it requires of me, when the play is finally done and all the anxiety is over and we're just happy, then I will be a more effective, fruitful Christian. Or you may be saying, okay, well, no, not, that's, not, that's not my thing. That's not what I do. Actually, for me, it's baseball season. I practice five nights a week. I have seven games every week. It's consuming my life. And so quite frankly, when I get home, I'm tired. I want to eat. I go to bed. I wake up and I do it again. And so after baseball season, I will be a more effective, more fruitful Christian. Or you know what? Actually, right now is pretty much, it's just not going to happen. When I'm older, when I'm older, I'll be more effective and I'll be more fruitful because I'll be, I'll be wiser. I'll be smarter. I will have finished school. Maybe I will even have finished college. Yeah, that's, that's when I will be the most effective Christian is when, when I'm older. Well, this is what we do, all of us, whether you're sitting down here as a student or you're sitting down here as a leader. We, we always think, well, if or when, then I will be the most effective Christian I can be. But I think that when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, that's actually the mindset that Paul is pushing back against. What Paul is saying, not just for adults, not just for the grown-ups in the church in Corinth, but for everyone who claims Jesus, is that actually right now is your moment. Right now is the moment that God has given you to be the most effective, the most fruitful that you can be. Not at a later time or in a different circumstance, but right now. So all of the circumstances that you can think about in your life right now, whether you're really, really busy or there's something really difficult in your life, whether you have really good friends or you have really bad friends or believing friends or unbelieving friends, whether your parents are going through a divorce or whether your parents love each other very much, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether this group, youth group is, is awkward for you or really, really helpful and fun for you, whether your school is awesome or really a horrible place each and every week of your life, the struggles that you have, what Paul would say is that right now, 
with all of those things as they are now, no change is made. This is what God has given you. This is the set of circumstances. This is the moment that God has given you to be the most fruitful and the most effective for his glory and for your good. Now that is a really hard thing to believe sometimes. Because we are conditioned, especially as Americans, to think that, you know what, I'm going to be most effective and I'm going to be most fruitful when I'm most what? Happy. Right? When things are going well. When my life seems like it's all in order. Because that's what life in America is all about. Like I say it all the time, just get on social media and everyone there is wanting you to be happy. I can be in my house and be like, you know what, Chelsea? We got some dead trees back there. It'd make me real happy if I could just cut those things down. I'm scrolling through Instagram and they're like, hey, you want to buy this chainsaw? How did you know? Because the internet reads my mind. And the internet's main goal in life is to, to make me obsessed with me. When I'm, when I'm happy, then I will be most effective and most fruitful. But that's not what Paul says at all. Not when all the things get in line and all the stars align and all the perfect things happen. No, Paul says right now. Right now is the moment. And so my question for you is this, and I, and I really hope you like dwell on this and think about it. Are you, wasting, are you wasting your right now? I mean, I wish someone would have asked me that, and maybe they did, and, and I just didn't hear them or I just didn't care. But as I look back at my younger self as a 32-year-old, I wish that I really would have thought, am I wasting what God has given me right now? Like, am I wasting this thing? Because there's like a man on stage as an adult, and he's saying, the Bible's saying that God has given me the right now to be effective, to be fruitful, to bring him glory. This is all for my good. Am I wasting it? So that's my question to you. Are you wasting it? And so I think uh, we can draw three principles from, from Paul's teaching here. Principle number one, the life you're living right now is the one that has been assigned for you to live. The life that you're living right now is the one that's been assigned for you to live. So look with me in verse 17. It says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Okay, so this, this phrase, <clears throat> excuse me, lead the life, in, in, in Greek, really it's kind of summed up like this. Paul's main idea is walk about in the life that God has given to you, right? So like we think of lead the life. We're like, okay, well, okay, well, what does that mean? Like live it, own it, whatever. But really the meaning is walk. Walk about in the life that God has given you. Walk about in these circumstances. And so right off the bat, what Paul is saying to all of us is don't adopt that mindset of someday. That someday I will. Someday then. Someday when. Someday if. No, Paul is, Paul is drawing our minds from looking into the future and saying, okay, well, where is it going to be best for me? And saying, no, draw yourself back and, and look here. Right now in the life that God has given you, you're, you're called to walk about in this life. And so what he is saying is that spiritual laziness doesn't please the Lord. We're not allowed to live an imaginary life in the future as believers, and God look at that and think, man, they're a really faithful person. They're thinking about the future and when they're going to be so faithful. And so what I want you to see is that the Christian life is an action verb. If you claim faith in Jesus, then what you're claiming is a life that is to be lived, 
now, right now. You're called to walk about in the life that God has given you. And so what I want you to realize is that God is not able to use you. As if like he can look and be like, you know, yeah, I see enough there. I, 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 can, I can work with this. God is not able to use any of us. God has chosen to use each and every one of us. There is so much difference between God being able to do something and God choosing to do something. Because what that means for us is we're not like, okay, well, you know, I'm pretty good at this, or, I, you know, I, can, I feel like I can teach the Bible, or, hey, I'm pretty good at having one-on-one -on -one conversations. You know, maybe God can use this. No, that's not how it works. God has chosen to give us everything in our life to use us. He has chosen to use us as a part of his plan of redemption. God's grand plan in creating all things and then seeing it dissolve into misery because of Adam and Eve, and then saying, you know what, actually, I got a guy, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and then giving us Jesus and Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, that anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus could be saved. None of that was a mistake. And your life is a part of that grand scheme, right? It's not like, okay, well, let me see what pieces I can use as we go along, it's, no, I, I have these people, and I will use them in this way. That's our life. And so every <clears throat> single day of our life presents us with an opportunity to serve and point to God and His plan for people. When I played high school basketball, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time uh, sitting on the bench. I was not horrible at basketball, but I was also not a starter. And so I played baseball, I played basketball, I played football, uh, I ran track, I did all of the things, and I did none of them very well. And so when it came basketball season, I would try really hard, and I would be like the sixth or seventh or eighth man on the team, which means I would sit on the sidelines and cheer for my friends, because they were really good, and I really wasn't. And all I could think about as I was sitting on the bench was the moment that coach was going to say, Kirkpatrick, get in. Like, it's what I lived for the moment that it would be my time to play the game. That's not the reality of the Christian life. Sometimes we, we think it is, that we're just sitting around and waiting for our moment, for that remember if or when moment, when we're finally going to get into the game and going to, to, to do something for God. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's how I like, thought about basketball, and it was right, but it's not the way we're to to think about the Christian life, right? The, the Christian life, there, there are no second string. None of, none of us are, are sitting on the bench waiting to get into the game. God has, in His plan, ordained that each of us has a primary role. We, we all play a, a primary, crucial purpose to God's plan in the world. So what that means is that all of the unbelieving friends or the unbelieving family members in your life, none of them have been accidentally placed in your path. As if you were driving down a highway and you just happened upon a crash. That, that's not how it happened. Your life has been mapped out before time. And so every unbelieving friend, every unbelieving family member has been placed in your life that you might serve God. And so every unbeliever is an opportunity to keep the commandments of God and to share the good news of the gospel and to show Jesus Christ. And I'll just be honest with you, that's one of the things I thought, man, I just don't do this well. I, I mean, I might give a little bit of lip service to 
maybe my unbelieving family members, and they're like, yeah, I mean, so what's it like being a pastor? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes it's really busy. Sometimes it's not. I get to hang out with students. Sometimes I hit them with dodgeballs. Um, you know, but like just generally, I mean, I enjoy it. Man, shouldn't I have probably said something about the ministry of the gospel? Because, I mean, even that conversation, those, those are not even accidents. They're moments that God has placed in front of us to, to be used by Him. Okay, the second principle is this. Now is the time to start cultivating healthy spiritual habits. Now is the time to start cultivating healthy spiritual habits. So this is another important implication of Paul's command to walk about the Christian life, right? Again, like the Christian life is a verb. It's something you do. It's not just something that has been done to you and now like you just get to wait until heaven. It's something that has been done to you that you might now live it out in your life for everyone to see. And so what I want you to know, especially if you're a high schooler, and I mean, there are studies done on this, and I mean, there's a lot of secular and Christian data on this. The, the habits, the life, the beliefs that you have now as a high schooler, in particular if you are 16 or older, are likely the habits and practices and beliefs that you will have when you are an adult. That should legitimately cause you a little bit of anxiety. Not, oh, I hope you feel bad about yourself right now. I mean in a like, oh man, what, okay, so what really do I believe? What, what, am, what am I doing? Because what he says, remember, again, in verse 19, he says, keep the commandments. Once again, it's another verb. Right? It's, not, it's not just like, oh yeah, I believe all of the Bible. He, he doesn't say, believe God's commandments. He says, keep them. You as a young person, one of the temptations you will face is to simply believe the right things and think that believing the right things will be the thing that anchors you whenever you are in college or whenever you are an adult. Now, we'll circle back around to that because I don't want to discount belief because it's absolutely crucial and primary to the Christian life. But what I want you to also see is that keeping the commandments is a commandment. Once again, it's, it's, it's a verb. It's what we are to do as believers. And so again, don't, don't believe the lie that you're going to be more faithful when. Right? Well, I'll, I'll keep God's commandments you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm older. When I'm out of my parents' house, then I know that I'll have to do this on my own. Listen to me. If you are waking up now and thinking, oh, man, if my mom or my dad wasn't here, I would not wake up and go to church right now. If you think that that mindset just all of a sudden changes when they're not in your room, oh, you are so mistaken. Those habits, those attitudes, those are things that you have to be cultivating now as a young person because those are likely the things that you will take into adulthood with you. And so if you're not willing and trying, and again, know that none of us do any of these things perfect. I've already confessed to you at least once that I don't do this well. But that's, that's at least a part of trying to do it well is confessing when you fail to do it. But, but if you're not willing to to try and pursue faithfulness, even as bad as it may be sometimes, where you're like, you know what? I'm really reading the Bible tonight. All right, all right, I'm gonna lay in my bed and I'm gonna read the Bible. All right, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna get ahead. First Corinthians chapter seven. Now concerning, con, con, now concerning food offered to idols, I would rather that you fall asleep with your Bible on your chest at night than, than to never pick your Bible up. Because those mindsets, that, that desire, that is what Paul is talking about for each and every one of us in here. Keeping the commandments, 
trying to pursue Jesus. And I'm telling you, if, if, if that's not what you are doing now, the older you get, the harder it becomes to, to cultivate these things. Now, like I said, let's circle back around because belief is the most important thing. If you have been filled with the Spirit of God, then you have partaken in a miracle. You are a miracle. You are a dead person who has been made alive by the grace of God. That is amazing. I don't want to discount that. When you get to heaven, the only thing that you will plead before God is, Jesus saved me. But, like we talked about in earlier chapters, when God also says, okay, well, then let's see what you did with what I gave you, that may be the moment that you're very embarrassed. I know I'm getting into heaven, but getting in is pretty embarrassing right now. Right? It's like Jesus' parable of the talents. I'm going to give this guy this many, this guy this many, this guy this many, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to see what they did with them. And the dude that's like, yeah, I took one and I buried it because I wanted you to have it when you came back. And, and he's like, uh, no, the thought was I would give you one and then when I came back, you would give me 10. That's, that's what we're to do with what God has given us. We're to literally work in his field until the day we die, out sowing seeds watering crops, doing difficult work of ministry until the Lord returns. That is really important. And so what I want to say is it can be really hard later in your life to cultivate these disciplines. It's not impossible, but one of the things that makes it really difficult is that immature people have a really hard time confessing and seeing the fact that they are immature. And the older you get as an immature person, the more you kind of bear down in your immaturity. Because whenever you're 30, 40, 50 years old and you're an immature believer, it's really difficult to confess that you're an immature believer and that you have wasted much of your life. It's not impossible, but it becomes much more difficult. And so as a young single person, because remember, this is coming right off the back of Jesus talking about married people and single people. You are single people. God has given you the gift of time to yourself. And so when you think about, okay, well, okay, how, how do I do this? How do, how do I cultivate disciplines? Well, again, the answer is kind of Sunday schoolish, but it, it, it's so true, and you can't skip over the simple means of grace that God has given you. One of them you're doing right now, gathering together and listening to the word preached. If you don't think that this is doing something in your life, then you are horribly mistaken. You might be sitting here right now and thinking, this is so boring, I want it to end. But something supernatural is happening because we have God's word open and we are considering what he has to say to us. And if the Holy Spirit resides in you, then the Holy Spirit will capture this stuff, even if it's for another time. And so one of those things you are doing right now, the second is praying, asking God for things asking for his help, asking for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. You don't have to read the whole thing. You don't even have to read through a whole book. You can read a psalm a day. You can read through the Proverbs, but giving an effort towards trying to grow in God's truth. Those are the ways in which you cultivate discipline. But here's the gift. Time. As a young single person, you have more time now than you will ever have in your life. I mean, even, even retired people say, man, I thought I would be less busy when I, when I retired. It's never true. There's always more bills, more places, more things, more, more grandchildren. 
So right now you have something that you will never have exactly in the same way that you have now. You can go home, you can eat your dinner, and you can say, hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, I'm going to go to my room and I'm just going to read my Bible before bed. I can't do that. I mean, I can if I do it late, but like I can't just make the decision to go home and eat and then read my Bible. I have butts to wipe that aren't my own. <laughs> I have mouths to feed that aren't mine. And it just it becomes more complicated. And so, I mean, the question again is, are you wasting what God has given you? This time to cultivate disciplines that will not just serve you now, but will be taken into adulthood with you. I don't want to seem dramatic or like, oh, like, you know, this is like just a typical youth pastor thing where something's really important and he's telling us it's really important. Listen, it's really important. That's not a joke. And then finally, the third principle, if you've been set free by Christ, don't live your life as a slave. All right, so if you've been set free by Christ, don't live your life as a a slave. So what does that mean? It means give up on pursuing anything to give you hope and purpose outside of Jesus, because those things will enslave you. Give up on finding hope and purpose outside of Jesus, because all of those things will enslave you. So the only true experience of freedom, especially in a sin-ridden, fallen world, is a relationship with Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that the only true experience of freedom in a sinful world is a relationship with Jesus? Because it's the only thing, it's the only relationship that promises good out of bad. Not promises that there will be no bad, but promises good out of bad. And and not only that, it's the only thing that provides hope in death. Because Jesus has died and he has risen again that we might die and be raised. And so even in death, there is life for eternity with Jesus and all of the other believers. And then another one is riches in poverty. There's, There's nothing else that promises you riches in the midst of poverty, whether it's health poverty where you're just limping through this life or whether it's physical financial poverty where you're just living paycheck to paycheck. Even in the midst of those things, Christianity says that you are, because of what Christ has done, rich. And you will be eternally wealthy forever. It's, it's the only thing that provides us hope in this life, in the midst of all of the difficulties and struggles. And so what this means is that finding fulfillment in things that you don't have, earthly things, it's like running on a treadmill. You just keep putting one foot after the other, and you're chasing this thing that you will never actually move any closer to. You'll get this thing that promises satisfaction and you'll realize you're still running on the treadmill. You're not actually satisfied. There's still more that you need to have. And that's why I say you become enslaved to those pursuits. Anything that you're trying to find hope and purpose in outside of Jesus will enslave you. It'll never actually give you what it says it will give you. And that's why he says, that Jesus is the one who has set us free. Jesus has set us free. He has died on our behalf. And those who have placed their faith and their hope in Him do not have to look anywhere else to find it. It's in Him alone. And what that means is that all of the circumstances, all of the difficulties, all of the struggles, we can actually look at those things and think instead of, oh, poor me, we can think, how is God using this in my life? How is this thing supposed to be used in my life to point people to Jesus? All right, so as we end, the world has a wickedly false view 
of what is worthy and valuable. I've said it a million times, the world attributes worth and value to the wrong things. But I think one of the sad realities is that standard has also creeped into the church, in, into us. Right? It's not something that we say out loud. It's not something that we are maybe even willing to confess, but we're all tempted by it, right? We say things like, man, that person seems so faithful. I, I should get to know them. Too bad they're unpopular. Too bad they're poor. Too bad they're weird. Too bad whatever. But what I want you to understand, God delights in the internal. That's why he spends so much time saying, this life that God has given you is the life that you're called to walk in. This is the life that you're called to keep the commandments in. I, I want not the facade of your life. I want all of your life. I want not your hands and your feet. I want your heart. I want not the actions. I want the motives. And so God does not look at us and think, man, they're, they're really worth using, right? God desires our heart. And so my question is, have you given it to him? Are you walking about for him? Are you wasting your time on yourself and other things? Or are you pursuing Jesus? Jesus.